Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. I have been looking forward to sharing the conversation in this week's episode with you, as I think it's a treat for both writers and readers alike. We recorded this live in-person event earlier this year at Powell's City of Books, and it was one of the best author-to-author conversations I've ever witnessed. Scottish novelist Douglas Stewart, winner of the Booker Prize for his debut novel, Shuggy Bane, discusses his new novel, Young Mungo, with Portland author and Oregon Book Award winner, Omar Elikad. They discuss the desire and longing at the heart of the story of the love between two working-class young men from different religious backgrounds in Glasgow. I was also especially taken by Stewart's description of how his previous career in the textile industry relates to his work as a writer. As a bonus, he also indulges in some earned pettiness about his early rejection and post-Booker Prize winning comeuppance. The conversation between Douglas Stewart and Omar el was recorded in front of a live audience at Powell's City of Books in Portland on May 5th, 2022. For a complete lineup of Powell's upcoming in-person and virtual author event programming, please visit them at powells.com events. We'll join Douglas and Omar at the beginning of the event with a moving introduction from Powell's employee, Nick Yandel. We are so honored to have with us Douglas Stewart. His debut novel, Shuggy Bane, won the Booker Prize and has been translated into at least 38 languages. His short stories, Found Wanting and the Englishman, were published in the New Yorker magazine, and his essay, Poverty, Anxiety, and Gender in Scottish Working Class Literature, was published by LitHub. Tonight, he'll be talking about his new novel, Young Mungo. Following teenage Mungo were thrown into the adversities of working class life in Glasgow, Scotland in the 1990s. While faced with the instability of his family life, the fear of being forced into violent conflicts with his gang leader brother, and his own struggles to hide and comprehend his budding sexuality, he finds the unexpected, a hope for something better in a young man named James. Sorry, I'm actually getting emotional on this side. I really love this book so much, so just take that into account, so anyway. (laughs) Mungo is a Protestant and James is a Catholic and they've been told they're enemies, but instead they become best friends. They bond over a passion for cultivating racing pigeons and eventually they fall in love. When Mungo's mother sends him away with two strange men on a harrowing fishing trip to a lock in Western Scotland, he's confronted with the need to find new strength and courage and not lose hope for a better future. A coming-of-age love story, raw and gripping, terrifying and beautiful, young Mungo spans the bounds of masculinity, exposes the bloody conflicts of sectarianism, and highlights the ever-present trials that so many queer people must withstand in order to find themselves and be true to love those who they love. (laughs) Few novels are as gutsy and gut-wrenching as young Mungo. Vividly realized and emotionally intense, this scorching novel is an urgent addition to the new canon of unsung stories. Stewart will be joined in conversation by award-winning author and journalist Omar Elikad, author of the novels American War and What Strange Paradise, and works that have appeared in New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Guernica, GQ, and many other papers and magazines. This evening's event will also include an audience Q&A if you'd like to get a book signed. By the, and if you'd like to get a book signed by the author, please line up on this side of the room at that time at the end of the event. Now, let's hear it for Douglas Stewart and Omar Elikad. Back there getting all weepy. I know, I'm, I'm having a tear myself. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming out. This is my first time in Portland, and God, what an introduction, so thank you. Is it really your first time here? It's my first time in the Pacific Northwest, yeah. Wow. 
Okay. Yeah, and you would think I'd be here because I love rain, and so, yeah. you know, but uh, uh, I'll be back. <laughs> okay, let's get started, because um, I, too, am in love with this book, and I'm going to talk your ear off about it. Um, hello, everyone. My name's Omar. I'm a writer. Um, I am not the first minister of Scotland, so in terms of interviewers, you've really taken a step down <laughs> in the world. What, what is it? Do they just call you and tell you the leader of Scotland wants to interview you for, for a book event? Is that, is that how it works? Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much it. Yeah. What do you say? I, I just say I'm hugely honored, but, but the strangest thing about the novel is it's connected me with so many people. People are quite keen to politicize the book, I think, but one of the things I try to resist all the time is that, because I think everybody can come to literature no matter where they are and and what their opinion is or what their own political views are. And not only have I had the chance to talk to Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, but I've met the royal family. I got to speak to the Duchess of Cornwall and two women that are further apart politically you could not find. And so I just stay in the middle and stay really polite. It's gonna be all political questions tonight. I'm gonna to get you in so much trouble. Um, it's gonna be great. Um, a while back, I was, I was um, listening to this interview, I think it was with Jerry Seinfeld, or some comedian who was talking about being introduced on stage one time, and the person started by saying, ladies and gentlemen, the best comedian in the world. And they said, that's the worst, like the worst way you can possibly introduce somebody on stage because they can't possibly live up to it. Um, and I was thinking about that because a few years ago, I have a friend in England who was like, hey, there's this novel, it's called Shaggy Bane. It's the novel of the decade, and it's not close. And I thought, oh, I'm getting ready to hate this thing. <laughs> and I picked it up and read it, and I thought, oh, it's not close. Um, and then the same friend told me, hey, there's a new book. Uh, it's even better. And I was getting ready to hate that one. And I read it, and I thought, oh, my god. Um, what have the last few years been like for you? Oh. <laughs> Some people really hate me, yeah, and is, is one of the things. The last few years have been really uh, phenomenal, you know. Shuggy Bane was a book that I didn't know would ever be published and actually was really soundly rejected by publishers uh, across the world. In fact, when my agent sent the book out, she said, if, if you get rejected, do you want to see the letter? Do you want to know? And I thought, yes, it will make me a better writer. It will make me a better man. And in about a week, the space of a week, I was rejected 20 times and it was a sound rejection. And the night that I won the booker, um, the first thing a journalist asks you, because they like to know the negative, the darkness, right? Is they said, tell me about your path through rejection. And I said, well, the book was sent out and I was rejected 20 times. You know, I'm buzzing from winning the booker. And I said, I was rejected 20 times. And my agent presses on mute and she says, it was 44 times. I just, <laughs> I just stopped telling you, you know, you weren't, uh, weren't as big a man as you thought you were. And I thought, fair enough, you know. But it's been the most, the most terrific and, uh, two years, I've just been very unprepared for it. You know, I didn't have an MFA, I didn't have a circle of writer friends, and I'm so grateful for everyone I meet, uh, but I felt very much like I came from the outside and then I was tossed into the inside without any preparation. So I'm learning as I go. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a very bad attempt at describing what this book is about. It's about many things. There's a love story, it begins as a friendship, there is a real undercurrent of malice and sort of it has a thriller quality through some of these these threads that run through it. Um, but it's just so beautiful at the line level. And I was wondering if you'll indulge us in a, a short oh. reading before we get to the questions. I'd be honored, yeah. Um, at the heart of the novel is a young uh, man called Mungo, who's named after the patron saint of Glasgow. And he's a lonely young man. He hasn't yet reckoned with his sexuality, but he has met another young man called James, who lives just a street away from him. And James raises pigeons. He has a ducat, which is this thing at the very front. It's a, it's a pigeon loft that is built on open public land. And they're both in their own ways, motherless sons. And they spend a night together and they get to know each other. James's bedroom was a mess. The walls were thick with posters pinned layer upon layer. Clothes, clean and dirty, lay in heaps on the floor. In the corner of the room was a pile of old canary cages modified to transport pigeons. Above these was a twitcher's map of Scotland, lochs and hillsides in glorious detail, each glen filled in with the type of bird an enthusiast could expect to find there. James had circled some far-flung places to disappear to. The boys lay together, with James facing upwards and Mungo with his head at James's feet, head to toe in the single bed. They took great pains not to touch, 
If one moved his leg too close, the other shifted and hung off the side of the narrow mattress. What's your maw like? asked James in the darkness. It was hard to describe such a thing. You only got one, mother. It didn't bear a comparison, and she didn't come with a list of features like a new oven. I don't know. She's just my maw. Mungo had never considered it before. He could hear James picking an old sticker from his headboard. Does she like to dance? Aye. Does she like to sing? More so when she's drunk. Mungo's eyes were open in the darkness. The room looked strange and somehow familiar. He would have thought a Catholic's bedroom would have been bare, or perhaps crucifixes everywhere, but there were none. He kept expecting to roll over and see Hamish eating cereal in his bed. My sister says she's not a mother at all. She says we were just a mistake that happened to a stupid young lassie, and that she's regretted it ever since. After my dad died, Momo decided she was going to put herself first. That's not what mammies are supposed to do. That's another thing Jody says. He didn't want to talk about them anymore. What was yours like? Oh, she was the business, James said it very quickly. Even when she was really sick, she pretended like she wasn't. Every day I came home from school, she wouldn't let me out of her hug until I told her everything that had happened. If Geraldine got home after me, she had to wait in line for her hug. It could take pure ages. My mammy called it the juicin'. She said if she didn't hold us tight, we would ignore her. She squeezed us as hard as she could to get all of the good stuff out of us. She wouldn't let go until you tell her absolutely everything. That sounds nice. Aye, it was. James coughed like there was a clog in his throat, and Mungo could tell he was breathing deeply to keep himself from crying. Mungo didn't know what to do. He reached out a hand and felt the sharpness of James's shin bone. He made a fist and tapped along the bone, up and down, up and down, the way a doctor would probe a fracture. He waited for James to pull away, but he didn't, and Mungo folded first. He drew back his hand, laid it in the centre of his chest. Thank you. Um, I want to start with my most sort of vaguely formed question. So if this is just rambling, feel free to take it in any direction you want and just ignore what I'm talking about. But um, the book's about a lot of things, but, but one of the things that stuck with me is the sort of negative space of inheritance. <laughs> what happens to these characters when they are denied what might in other circumstances be considered a basic birthright, mm -hmm. you know, compassion, or if they're denied the person they want to be by the culture or the history of the society that they're in and, and what they do with that negation. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose what I'm curious about is when you're constructing these characters that are also hyper-realistic, how much is wanting a load-bearing beam? How much is, is the wanting and the things they desire playing a role in the construction of these characters? That's a great question. I think wanting is central to what each of these characters is, who they are. But I think what they want is often very ordinary things. They want things that I think many people would take for granted. And Maureen Hamilton is the mother in the story, and she has three children. Hamish, who's the eldest, 18, Jodie, who's 17, and Mungo, who's almost 16. And they're all on the edge of a new life for themselves. Maureen included. Maureen wants love. All she wants is to be adored. And she's a very young mother, and she's... She is, uh, through Jodie, through her daughter's eyes, a very bad mother because she doesn't uh, stay at home. She's always out looking for a party, looking for some love. She's, she's a bit of a rascal. But the thing she wants is really simple. She wants to be adored. She's never been loved. And I think that's actually a very sad thing for the mother, except the children are so angry because they keep being abandoned. You know, Hamish wants some kind of respect. He wants some kind of bright future, and he isn't going to get it because he came in of age after the Thatcher era when unemployment's 26%. And so he's come of age with cynicism already baked inside him, and he's such a young man. And Jodie wants to escape her brothers. She wants a bright future. She wants to go and make it to university, and she wants just to you know, to be herself. She'll be able to run a country one day. She could be the first minister. She's so bright and so capable. But she's been held back by caring for her beloved, who is Mungo, who's her youngest brother. She's become his proxy mother. And the problem is, is they all want something from Mungo. What they want from Mungo is for him to grow up or to man up or to hurry up or to, 
Hamish wants him to become a man and to be violent and to be sexualized and to hold up the family reputation. And Jodie wants him to grow up so she can be released of taking care of him, of raising him. And so they all want something and they want something of each other. And yet they're quite simple, small things, but they're, they're not going to get them or they are going to get them and they're going to have to make huge sacrifices in order to get them. I'm I'm curious. I mean, you you, I'm sure you get asked about this a ton. Which the the sort of adjacency between your life and the lives of these characters, because um, obviously there's there's your background and sort of where you grew up and your relationship with your mother. But I'm wondering, over the course of writing these books, have you developed rules of how to treat that, or is it a fairly organic process in terms of like I'm wondering if you ever get to a place where you think this is too close or I need more time to sit with this before I find a way to fictionalize it. How, how do you think about that, that relationship? Well, Shuggy took me 10 years to write, and actually part of that was because I kept coming across that problem. Uh, but not only the fact that I was writing about things that were too personal or too painful or, or that maybe didn't need to be shared, there was no real need to share this stuff other than the artistic thrust. But what really took me a lot of time was trying to understand some of those things because I knew how they felt, Omar. I knew how it made a young boy feel. I knew what sectarianism or addiction looked like in the home. But I didn't necessarily ever take the time to understand why it had come to be, why these things existed in society. And and as soon as I took my own personal story and I turned it into Shaggy Bain, it was an, an exercise in me in trying to locate the hurt, trying to understand why fictional characters had gotten to that situation they had got themselves into, why men could be hard, why a beautiful, gorgeous, talented, promising young mother would turn to addiction and away from her children. And it was a, it was a painful place to, to press into, but I found a huge amount of catharsis in just deepening my own understanding and, and asking those big questions of fictional characters. And in a way, although I started with a very autobiographical story or a very personal place, the moment I allowed a chorus into the novel and the moment, because I felt like I couldn't explain a world if you saw everything through Shuggy's eyes, you had to really see these other characters almost as cameras that I'd mounted on the landscape looking at a situation or looking at a mother or looking at uh, a problem. And you understood it hopefully from a deeper point of view because many people were looking at the same thing rather than just one little boy. And the minute I allowed that chorus in, I allowed them to tell you how they felt and what was going on, I felt a huge liberation. I felt braver. I felt uh, like I had less responsibility to, to control the truth because then I was not saying it was just my point of view about the time or the place. And there was a liberation in that for me. But Young Mungo is a much more fictional book. Um, it, certainly it deals with the milieu. I grew up on the streets that Mungo lives on. I grew up at the same time. I was a young man that was really caught in a very narrow expression of masculinity. And as a young queer man, I was very afraid often for my own safety. And so I was performing my masculinity. I was trying to fit in with the heterosexual men around me, the other boys. And so I got caught up in some gang violence and some fighting and chasing girls, the poor girls that I chased that, you know, were very kind to me, but I wasn't always doing it for the right reasons. And so you know, I wanted to write about that masculinity because it was a very narrow expression, even for straight men. I mean, that's one of the other things about your background that 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 stuck with me is that um, your education was not in an MFA program. You went, your degree was in textiles. Is mm -hmm. that, yeah. What does that lend to the writing process? Has there ever been an unexpected moment where it it comes into play in the writing process? Yeah, I wonder. I'm a knitter, actually, by trade, which is like the gayest thing you can be <laughs> in fashion, and I'm proud of it. Um, but, you know, I I was a kid that didn't have a very promising future because there was addiction at home and I'd missed so much school. And, you know, there's basic things about science I don't understand between liquids and gases, you know. You'll never find me writing the big science novel. But... It, I was a creative kid and I had these teachers that, that turned me towards textiles. I didn't know what the word meant at 17, but they said, we know what you can do and we know that you can always have a trade. That was really key, right? You could work in a mill, you could make cloth. This was an important thing. I could, I could make money because I was orphaned at 16. And 
textiles has really taken it's taken me in places that I never imagined. It brought me to America. It brought me to New York. But it was also the only skill I had when I sat down to write Shaggy Bane. And the first couple of drafts, the first hundred couple of pages were rotten because I was aping all my favorite authors. I was trying to be Cormac McCarthy or Toni Morrison. And eventually, a couple of months, nine months into it, I realized you've got to do this for yourself. You've got to figure out whatever it is you have and do just that because you're a lousy version of someone else. And I realized I'd always been thinking about details. I'd always been observing things really closely. I'd been really in the minutiae and able to see things with textiles. You have to see the, the, the minuscule stitch and then be able to imagine the tapestry. And so I use my powers of observation in lots of ways. And, and textiles teaches you patience. It teaches you uh, perseverance. But it also is really involved with texture and the sensory and how things feel and how things sit together. And when I started to unlock that and use my visual uh, skills, I was able to create quite an immersive book for readers in a way where I wasn't always intruding as the author and, and just allow them to see and to touch it and to feel it too. So that was a, sorry, I'm a novelist. You get really long-winded answers with me. No, no, that's great. I, I, had, I had the opposite experience. Uh, mm. I started out trying to be myself and then decided it was much more fruitful to be a lousy version of someone else. So, <laughs> so. I might still do that. Listen, it's, it's, it's only my second book. Um, you talked about, uh, I think in one of the interviews, um, when you were writing Shaggy Bane, that you were writing it largely out of sequence at the beginning. Mm. You were moving around, and I think you started in what ended up being chapter 13 or something like that. <laughs> Was the process similar for for Young Mungo? Is it, or was it sort of A to B? No, it's. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a lousy metaphor, but it's like raising a kid. And I learned all my lessons with my firstborn. You know, the first draft of Shuggy Bane out of I wouldn't allow my. I'm a product of the British class system, right? And the British class system said to young Scottish men, "You don't belong here in literature." Everything was from the south. It was kind of bending around us. It wasn't talking to us. And so when I sat. To begin writing Shuggy Bane, I wouldn't admit I was trying to write a book. I just thought, just just write, take all the pressure off yourself. But the problem with that and with writing it out of chronological order or, or without having a plan is the first draft was 1,800 pages. It was a monster, and it was this huge thing that was housed in two legal binders. And I had such joy in creating it, but then I created this kid, this, this project that I couldn't contain, that just was formless in many ways. And so I turned to my long-suffering husband, and I said, will you read this? And he sort of looked at me, and he looked at the binders, and he went, yeah, all right. Um, and because actually he didn't know what he was going to come across. You know, he didn't know if it was going to be just ramblings or, or garbage. But he went into the other room, and he started to read it. And I was listening to all of his sighs and all of his laughter from the other room, and I was trying to be like, oh, what is it? And I gave, him, I gave him four hours to read it. And then I went in, and I said, are you done? And he went, no, I'm not done. And actually, it took him seven months to read that first draft. Every spare minute this man had. And I looked at his notes again the other day, and for the first 200 pages, he's so thoughtful. He's got a fine-nibbed pen, and he attends to every metaphor, every part of the world I'm building. And then about page 200, the will to live just leaves his body. <laughs> you just see it. And like, you know, I'm surprised I didn't find ads for divorce, like just tucked in, because he's like, you know, he's definitely Googling apartments to rent, but he's he just starts to score through it, and he's like, and he writes in the margin, ugh, or stop it, you know, or in a way only your husband can. And anyway, he gives it back to me, Omar, after seven months of work, and I was so offended that he had done the exact thing I'd asked him to do, that we didn't speak for seven weeks. One bedroom apartment, we didn't speak for seven weeks, and I had to go, I had to get over it, I had to mourn it, I had to apologize. So... In 2008, I start Shuggy. In 2016, I start Young Mungo. Shuggy's eight years old, and he's in the top corner of my desk, uh, which is my kitchen table. I leave a lot of time between drafts because no one else was giving me feedback on my work. But Mungo came with a plan. He'd been brewing inside me for so long, and he said, I know exactly who I am. And he was. And actually, I executed almost flawlessly to the initial plan with the exception of those are two characters that are critical to the book that weren't in the initial outline, and that's Mrs. Campbell and Mr. Calhoun. And I wrote the first draft, and they said, you can't write this story without us. Like, we need to tell you about the social backdrop, and we also need to tell you about queer working-class lives. You talk a little bit about that idea of, of what the Empire is saying mm -hmm. to Scotland, to the people who live there, mm -hmm. um, which made me think about 
the Booker, which was the big sort of breakout moment. Um, I think the Booker's been around for, what, 50 years or something like that. Yeah. You're the second Scottish novelist yeah. to... Mm-hmm. Tell me about the first and what <laughs> that book meant to you. Well, that's a great question about Empire, because I think James Kelman is one of my literary heroes. I don't know if you've read any Kelman, but he's a phenomenal Scottish writer. Not always the easiest, but he has, he has, you know, he really is a master. But he won for a book called How Late It Was, How Late in 1992. And it was when he won, there was a judge that stormed out. Of the, of the ceremony and said, this is a book not worthy of winning. It's literary vandalism. Because he's essentially written in the same way that I do, uh, with a local vernacular, with a dialect, with an accent, with a patois. And he embraces both the Scots language, but also the Glaswegian dialect. And it was the front page of the newspaper. And there were stories about, which is a really rude thing to do, about how you're meant to get your be announced the winner, then everyone goes for a cocktail, and then you're meant to come back and celebrate the winner. And only a third of the room returned, which is the first time in history. And that tells you everything you need to know about literary imperialism. Everyone in London thought, this book is not written in the, the style we are used to. It uses language in a new and inventive way. It cannot possibly win the booker. And the judges went on to speak to the newspapers. And so that's the backdrop for all the young Scottish, Welsh, Irish writers that are, that are looking to use their, their, their natural tongue. And I see that, and you get silenced by it. You just you learn the signal that you're not invited to be part of literature, right? It's not real literature, because it's not, this is what they're saying to you. And so in a lot of ways, when I was writing Shuggy Bain and through the rejection, I thought I wasn't going to be published because of some of that, or it would be published in a very small way. But I had to make a decision when I was writing the book about who am I writing it for? Because I could write it in received pronunciation. I could use the loveliest, fanciest language that would make people at Oxford and Cambridge really delighted. And I would exclude Shuggy and Agnes. I would say, I am writing, I'm looking at you and I'm writing about you, but I'm not standing with you. And I didn't want to do that. I couldn't write about my community and my people in doing that. And so I made the decision really early on that I'm shoulder to shoulder with my characters, but also that the language should be accessible first to them. I remember in one of the interviews, um, I think you were talking about of those 40-some rejections, getting letters that would say something like, you know, this is a gorgeous book, this is beautiful, I have no idea how to market this book, which seems yeah. to speak to that, to yeah. that notion. I received three letters that said, you will win the booker, I don't know how to publish your book. And that's like two years before the book's even published. And and so people could recognize the power of the novel. They just didn't know how to introduce it to readers in Portland or, or how it was intersecting with the zeitgeist. They just didn't know how to publish it, the technical side of publishing. I suppose it's, it's pretty easy to play humble and sort of deflect this question, but what is it like knowing that you might now represent what, how late it was, how late, the, the, the book winning, that the booker, in the sense that there might be a new generation of readers for whom these descriptions and these scenes are the first time they've seen themselves in literature. Yeah, it's 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 actually quite overwhelming, and it's you know you try to do your best with it, but I'm hopeful that uh, seeing Shuggy in the world and seeing it translated into 38 languages, which was really hard for the translators as well, um, that it will bring a lot of regional voices or queer voices or queer working class voices or or anybody that feels excluded from literature, you know people of color that are queer and working class, all of these people that don't maybe sit center of the thing or haven't nurtured a career through the MFA or the industrial complex. And so you're hoping that it just invites more conversations. And actually, one of my very favorite things that delights me every single day is once you win a prize as big as the booker, uh, your job becomes blurbing other books for a lot of it. You get sent every manuscript on the planet. And, so why um, aren't you returning my calls? <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite thing, and, uh, and I'm a little bit petty, but my favorite thing is to turn over a manuscript from a publisher that rejected me. And it says at the top, if you loved Shuggy Bane, you will. And then it's, you will love this book. And I think to myself, you didn't love Shuggy Bane. Like, uh, so I do love getting those. Those make my day. I, just my, I think my favorite part of being a writer is those few opportunities to be really petty about something. Sure. It's, just, yeah. it's just the best. But only human, right? Like. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, heads up, uh, in about eh, five, ten minutes, I will open it up to audience questions. So if you have anything on your mind, uh, please start thinking of it now. 
Um, I don't know that it is possible to win a fight with the past. You can't mm -hmm. go back and change anything. Mm -hmm. You can't hurt the past. You have no agency there. Mm -hmm. um, but in the process of writing these books, you, you touched on this a little bit at, at the beginning of the conversation, but has it brought that catharsis? Has it, has it reordered your thinking about the environment in which it was necessary for you to be in order to write these kinds of books? Yeah, and, and you can't fight with the past, but I think you can illuminate it really clearly. And funnily enough, a lot of people say to me, well, these books are historical fiction. And I think to myself, actually, they, were, they took place in my lifetime and I'm not that old. And a lot of what I try to do with my writing is just to give voice to the voiceless, myself primarily, my own experience. But you know, there is fine Scottish literature, excellent Scottish literature that deals with deindustrialization. But it often was framed from a heterosexual male point of view. And when I was writing Shuggy, I just wanted to frame it on the feminine, both this mother who's so unspeakably glamorous, but also so wounded, and then this young queer boy who cannot fit in with the men around him. And that was because I'd known Glasgow to be a feminine place because my entire world as the son of a single mother was women. Um, and I knew that's where its strength and its beauty and also its emotional understanding came from, right? The women understood it on a frequency that the men never got it. And so I wanted to just rewrite that story and place these feminine characters at the center. And then everything I grew up loving as a, as a queer man was queer literature, but it always had a, a sense of mobility to it. It always had a sense of uh, a velvet rope or a private room or a boarding school or some kind of middle class or upper middle class lean. Not to say it all did, but the majority of it did. And so I wanted to write Young Mungo to just say, look, there's always been queer working class voices and the consequences for us are so different to a queer middle class or upper middle class uh, story. And, and that's the purpose of writing Young Mungo for me, just to show how do you fit in in a community when you can't leave it, you don't want to leave it, but it's the only place you also belong. It's the only place you know, and yet you just don't fit in. And so you can't ever settle scores with the past, but I think we can do an awful lot to make sure it's not erased. I'm a deeply jealous reader and a deeply jealous writer, so I can't, I have to ask the nerdy craft question because there were, um, there were a few times in this book where I would come across a sentence and think, so good, so why, kind. why is it so good? I don't like this guy. Um, I, I'm wondering about the process of stringing these sentences together. I'm thinking of, I'm gonna butcher this, so please correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but there was, there was a sentence about Mungo having so much love to give mm and it fell all around him like ripened fruit mm -hmm. and nobody bothered to gather it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a killer sentence for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. The sensory in it, the sense of urgency, the work the ands are doing to compel mm -hmm. that sense of urgency. Are, are these sort of, um, do you think about them, think about them, put them on paper, never touch them again, or are you sort of hammering away at them and getting them in place? How, how do you think at a sentence level, I suppose? Yeah, I, I think um, I don't put them down and then it's done. I wish I was Muriel Spark. I have so much respect for Muriel who wrote a draft and then corrected the draft and then published it. And I'm like, that's how to be. But, but I'm a huge rewriter. I spend, I wrestle with it forever. And, um, and I do a lot of it in my head. You know, I, I'm thinking, obviously we all do, but I, I spend a lot of time walking and thinking about my sentences. But for me, I can't explain that particular sentence, but I was thinking about men and how we never expected them to have an abundance of love. We expect a lot of things from men, but men who love a lot, who really love, are kind of make people feel really uncomfortable. And Mungo is this kid. He just has so much love to give, and the people around him just don't know how to receive it. And I was thinking about him as, as a harvest. You know, he is a seed, he is a vine, he has this harvest, and nobody picks it up, nobody gathers it up. They don't know what to do with it. And I'm a writer that tries to combine really ugly things with really beautiful things and really sad things with really funny, stupid things all the time because I think life is like that. It often comes at you when you least expect it and you can't filter it or parse it apart. And so my prose tries to do that too and also to make people feel a little uneasy or, or, or off balance often. 
um, often I'm writing about tenderness, but it's veering towards violence. You know, you feel that sort of coming in. And I think one like salt without sugar in that way isn't worth that much or sugar without salt. It's always got to, maybe that's a textiles metaphor would be better, but it's always got to have that balance, those things sitting together. But I spend a lot of time rewriting. I think I did about 20 drafts of Shuggy, full drafts, like writing over and over and over again. And Mungo, I think, was about eight. Wow. But I struggle with language. We all struggle with language, but I, I, I really do. So you were born in one city. You now live in another. Uh, you were born in Glasgow. You, you, you grew up in Glasgow. Uh, you live in New York now. Um, the book's been published... Um, I actually, I wanted to, before I get to this question, I have to ask you about the covers. Mm. What was the decision? They're both gorgeous covers. Mm -hmm. What was the decision behind this one and the one I think that's, that's out in, in the UK right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky that my publishers uh, give me some leeway with the covers and they allow me to suggest what they are. And so when the novel is finished, I present them with some options. I don't get, I've, I've worked too long in industrial design to know that I shouldn't take full responsibility <laughs> or tell them this is it. I'm not that author. But I give them a couple of options. And in the United Kingdom, I don't know if you've seen it, it's two young men kissing. It's a Wolfgang Tillman's image, which uh, was taken in 2002. They're fully dressed, they're in a nightclub. Such a passionate kiss, it's sweaty. It's a bit sort of, uh, you know, too visceral. But for me, it was the tenderness and the bravery uh, that, that I wanted to represent in the book. But the photo meant so much to me as a young man. But when it was first displayed, it was displayed at the Whithorn. And somebody went in, marched right up to it, tore it from the wall and ripped it to shreds. And so to see love rewarded with just hate is kind of the point of the book in a lot of ways. You know, it's really what Mungo and James go through. And so the image was perfect for me, but I couldn't ask my American publisher to do it because America's a country that's really wrestling with its moral direction at the moment. You know, we're really lost and we're fighting in so many ways. And so for me, I love this photo. Actually, it's by a local photographer um, called Kyle Thompson. And it's a self-portrait. It's a photo, as I was talking to a friend, Adam, today. We were talking about, you're not quite sure what the narrative is of it. Is the man drowning? Is he coming out of the water? Is he going to emerge? But it's such a beautiful, tender photo. Then you don't see all of the story that I thought it's exactly what Mungo's going through. The restraint in your description of the American moral moment <laughs> is quite diplomatic. Can I tell you my favorite moment of the last week? I went, I was in Miami at Books and Books, who are fantastic, and I was inside a church, and then I did an event in a synagogue, and I took the UK version of the two men kissing, and I just sat it right there, and it was such a good moment, and, you know, I had to ask the audience not to call the cops on me and, and get Ron DeSantis on me, but the truth is, is, like, you know, it's such an innocent thing. It's, it's very normal to me, but I realized that it's not normal for everyone. But I felt after winning the Booker with Shuggy Bain that I had a responsibility to be bold. And if anyone was going to do it, then I should do it. Um, before I open it up to the audience, the, the second part of that question had to do with the notion of, of this book being published in so many places. Shuggy was, was I'm, I'm sure Young Mungo is in the process. Um, has there anything, is there anything that's surprised you about the different sort of regional reactions to the text itself? Uh, anything that sort of you didn't expect? It's been wild. It's been wild because the, a book never changes. And so the reader brings half of the relationship or the, or the perception or the lens to the work. And when you have it in Scotland or Ireland, people don't need the work explained to them. They're just like Agnes and Shuggy. And Portugal and Spain, it's been so affirming just to see how universal our connection is. Pittsburgh was one of the deepest, most profound connections I've ever had because Pittsburgh went through a very similar journey to Glasgow. And then you get to Germany, and the Germans are so logical that, you know, the hand goes up, and the question is, is why would you drink yourself to death? And you think to yourself, yeah, that, that's the point of the book, that's the question, you know, but they just couldn't process it, because to them it was so illogical. And so it's been fascinating just to see what readers project on the book, and and it's been, it's been really wonderful. But I had a question last week. It was an American woman. I'm so sorry. But she was so excited. And she was in the front row. And she, her hand went up. She had a question. And then I said, oh, great. She's very excited. She said, congratulations on your book being translated into almost 40 languages. My question is, when will it be translated into English? Oh. 
And that was great because it was my opening when I got home to Glasgow, and you should have heard the crowd. So this, I was, I've been dining out on it for weeks. It's my favorite. It's my favorite question. That's a hell of a burn. Yeah, That's but a it's, a, it's a real burn. Yeah, it was a burn for her. The audience didn't like it so much. But um, uh, she was an Eng she was an American woman in England, and even the English went, oh, "Don't do that to a Scotsman." But it was fantastic. But but that's what I mean. So part of it as a writer is you just go on the journey, and you don't know the whole journey until the reader reflects part of it back to you. Who wants to be the story that Douglas tells <laughs> at the next? And I will. I'm <laughs> very indiscreet. Who's brave enough to be the first question tonight from the audience? No bravery needed. <laughs> Those two are hitting the door. Yeah. yeah. Not a chance. Not yeah, a chance. No chance. <laughs> I was a, they gave me the Chinese translation of my first novel. Uh, it's a book called American War. And I did obviously didn't know what was on the cover. And I asked them, you know, at one point I was asking my friend uh, who, who spoke the language, what does this say? You know, what did they translate the title? And he said, oh, that says nobody survives. They got to the point, I guess. That's no? about right, yeah. It was so funny because I did an event at the Sorbonne with a lot of my translators came in. They wanted to talk about the art of translation. And there was the translator for Hebrew, uh, for Norwegian, for French, for some other languages. And they did a really remar remarkable thing with the book because they took the Glaswegian dialect and they translated it into their own languages, but they didn't position it in any of their own cities. So when you're reading it, you don't think, what is this Glaswegian family doing in Marseille? What they did is they invented an urban language and they'd all come to that agreement. But I'd said to them, thinking they would say, it was such a joy to translate. I said, I was in the audience, and I said, how was it? And they all kind of looked so shell-shocked. And apparently, there's a Facebook self-help group of all my international translators. And they just go on there, and they sort of ask questions of each other, complain a little bit. And I went and had a look the other day, and I thought, oh, this isn't for me. They don't, this, is like, this is like a private chat. This isn't for me. Um, oh. Yeah, every journalist I ever spoke to asked me if I was going to have a difficult second album, and I was really worried about that. And But I was very grateful that I'd begun Young Mungo in 2016 and finished it in 2021, just after I'd won the Booker. And so, for the most part, it comes from a very private, personal space. But I was worried that people would, you know, what they would perceive of the book. But my third novel was proving to be much more difficult. I think I'll have a difficult third album. But, but because part, so part of why I like to write is to be, you know, in communion just with myself. And it's hard, I think, as a professional writer, after you publish your debut, you can't ever return to that space, no matter how it is. You, you just know too much. You don't have any of that naivety. And so I kind of long for that, you know, I'm looking to rent a sea cave and just disappear into it. That is the dream, right? That, that is the dream. Um, I was wondering, as a young person, uh, what um, authors or um, books inspired you or impacted you, gave you a desire to write? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. I didn't read till I was about 17. I could read from the age of four, but we didn't have books at home. In fact, I grew up in such a house-proud house, my mother was fiercely proud that we had, I think, about six shelves of what looked like red leather books. They had gilt writing on them, but if you reached for them thinking you were getting Henry James, you would open it and you got a VHS video cassette, and instead it was like Dynasty or something. And so we looked like we were a very, you know, a very bookish house and we didn't have any books. But when I was about 16, high school emptied out. Like, a lot of the kids just left school to go get jobs in my community. And of the 250 kids, we went down to about 12 in my year. And so I was often in classes by myself, and that included English class. And that's when my love for reading really ignited because I had two teachers that were really understimulated and they just started to push things towards me. Uh, Mr. Arthur and Mr. Archibald. And the first works that I read were the works of Thomas Hardy. And there's Tess in Agnes, there's Jude in Leek. You know, they've really stuck with me. But Tennessee Williams wasn't on the curriculum for us, but I think they realized they just had a wee gay boy in the class and so they started to like slide <laughs> Tennessee round the side to me. And, and Amanda Wingfield is in Agnes, you know, Blanche Dubois, 
all of that drama, all of that passion, that sort of uh, f beautiful facade and then the disintegration is something that stuck with me from Tennessee Williams. But that's when books opened up for me. And, you know, I love John Donne, the poetry of John Donne. I love Daphne du Maurier, actually, because I think she's uh, got such an ability to build time and place. But those are all the books I came to as a young man. interested because the two books were happening kind of layered on top of each other. So my question is about your personal experience with sectarianism, mm. which is just lightly touched in Shuggy and is the center of the problem in Mongo. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you lived through those experiences. Yeah, sectarianism is a really strange thing in Scotland and in Liverpool and in mainland UK because it's very different to what was going on in Northern Ireland. And it was something that I didn't really understand was very perverse until I became American and I was looking back. But essentially, you know, there's been trouble between Catholics and Protestants since the Reformation. And there's been so much cross-migration um, with half my family come from Donegal and we live in Glasgow. And even at my dinner table, you know, there would be what my family would consider banter between my mother's side and my father's side. But now in 2022, we think of it as hate speech, really, truly. But, you know, there was always that undercurrent and we're separated as young men, young working class men into Catholic education or non-denominational. We can grow up on the same housing scheme, but we're, we're taught we're slightly different and it's, it's embedded in the culture. What happens is, is when you become a young man, you know, 14 to 18, you start to really f sort of maybe for recreation, you can fight for your scheme or your street, you organize into gangs. But it's a recreational thing, which is a hard thing to explain. It's a bit reputational, it's a bit for respect, but also it's just fun. It's fun to fight other lads on a Saturday night, it really is. And so we did a lot of that just to pass the time. But it's a, it's a division that can also be legitimized by the sports culture of the city, because we have a football team, Glasgow Celtic, which is thought of as Catholic. And then we had Glasgow Rangers, which had its very first Catholic player, I think, in 1988. And it made the front line news. So there's all these weird ways it's legitimized and supported, yet it never really is about identity or violence in that way that it is in Northern Ireland. It's one of these things that just organizes young men sometimes into tribes. And so I just thought it was really perverse. I can't, I still can't, you know, a lot of my work is about divisions. Even my characters are divided inside themselves. They're either hiding something or revealing something or want to be someone different. And sectarianism sits right in the heart of that for me because it was really weird. You know, I'm the son of a single mother. My mother was Catholic and yet I ran with Protestant boys. And we would go out and we would knock seven bells out of each other, you know, and it'd be fun and you'd have, you'd have a, you'd drink too much. It was a Saturday night, something to do. And then I would go home to my Catholic mother. So it meant nothing to me. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Do you have a sense of the characters going on past the end of the novel? I think what I'm asking is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, believe it or not, I'm an optimist, um, which you might not believe having read my books. But I am. I believe in the salvation of love. I believe in the redemption of love. Um, and Shuggy and Mungo, I think, are going to be okay. But, but part of what I want to do as a writer, because I like this as a reader, is I want you to be part of this journey with me. I want you to worry about these characters when the final page closes. We go through a lot of really difficult themes about intergenerational poverty, about homophobia, you name it. And so you can't close a book and be like, and tomorrow is great, because that's just not the, it's every day is an incremental improvement. And so Shuggy and Mungo have a journey ahead of them, but the world's getting better. Um, at least in terms of queerness, something I'm really pleased to announce is Glasgow was voted the eighth best place on the planet to be if you're a queer person. That was just announced last. So the world's always changing, but that doesn't mean to say we should forget our history. Um, and so, yeah, they'll be all right. And also, I think they know each other, and I think they might know each other in the future. You know, I think these lives, uh, there's a bit of a universe happening. <laughs> they're all right. They told me to tell you they're okay. <laughs> they told me to tell Um, 
Yeah, actually, I find short stories the hardest of the two forms because um, you have to be very tight and you don't get to indulge yourself too much. But part of the reason why the short stories came about is because I was talking to a young queer friend in his 20s and he couldn't believe a world existed before the internet. He literally just couldn't believe it. Logically, he could understand it, right? Because he knew dinosaurs existed, but he couldn't understand that I would ever be someone that had grown up without an email or an internet. And I was thinking about how we used to connect as queer communities, how we would use chat lines, how we would write letters to one another, how we'd answer personal ads. And that's really where those stories came from. It's about loneliness and about queer history and connecting in that way. But, but it came from the fact that this young man just couldn't wrap his mind around it. Um, and I, you know, even my short stories intersect with my novels. You might not pick it up instantly, but the characters are kind of like talking to each other. Because I think of these as young men that are just out there in the firmament, um, twinkling away, and they might know each other, they might glance, you might hear about them in the third book. But but it's, um, I find it the hardest thing to do. Sorry, that was a long, a long stop. Yeah. Um, one more? Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, as the United States like grows towards more queer something like culture, are, do you plan on changing the cover over to the UK cover? <laughs> I, I love the UK cover. I think that should be the cover. Uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, you are very optimistic about queer culture in America. Um, I think we're still in a pretty fraught time, and I think we're in a time uh, I fear, I fear actually for a lot of young queer youth. Um, but I try to love all my children equally. I think it's good to have options, and I think it's good to, it's better that your literature can reach people where they are rather than forcing something on them. So you can definitely buy the UK cover, but I do love this. This is by a queer photographer, so we're supporting the queer arts everywhere we go. For those of you who've read the book, you know that it's not hyperbole on my part when I say there's one of the most beautiful things I've read in a very, very long time. For those of you who haven't, uh, pick it up. It is gorgeous and alive, and these people are deeply alive. That was Douglas Stewart, author of Young Mungo, in conversation with Omar el recorded in front of a live audience at Powell's City of Books in Portland, Oregon, on May 5th, 2022. Thank you to Nick Yandel, Jeremy Garber, and Tina Merrill at Powell's for collaborating on this episode. And thank you to John Mark Bowling at Grove Atlantic. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.